At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and it is great to have you along. Just ahead on the program, Atlanta author Laurel Schneider shares how she combines Judaism and magic in her new book, The Witch of Woodland. Plus, speaking of music, shines a light on Gringo Star, and we'll hear about the band's experience playing at the Shaky Knees Music Festival. But first, there are many activities you can enjoy on weekends in Atlanta. You could catch a matinee, take a walk on the Beltline, or go to a free drag bingo event at Politan Row in Colony Square. At a time in our nation when drag performers have come under fire, drag shows and brunches are still spreading joy and cultivating positive attitudes towards drag entertainers. Brigitte Bidet is an MC, showgirl, drag superstar, and the hostess of Drag Bingo at Politan Row. Also, not long ago, she was crowned the winner of the Atlanta All-Stars Drag Competition, an eight-week contest featuring some of the city's best entertainers. When Lois recently spoke with Bidet, the drag star explained some of the challenges that accompanied her win grueling, stressful, all those great things that make you better as an artist. But it's kind of a continuation of this other amazing contest we have here in Atlanta, started by Phoenix, one of our city's greatest drag queens, who is also on RuPaul's Drag Race. But she has a show called Dragnificent for people who are looking to establish themselves more as a drag performer. And that's similar at eight-week competition. There's a grand prize. And This one, All Stars, is for people who've been doing it for at least five years, have more of a career behind them. And I was like, I'm going to do it for a creative challenge. And then I was like, I want to win so bad. So (laughs) I'm glad I did it. I wanted to push myself. I'm lucky enough to be a full-time drag queen. And sometimes we can feel plateaus as artists or wondering if we're just phoning it in, what's next for me. So yeah, I wanted to do this as a way to evolve and I ended up winning, which is pretty cool. It sounds like you didn't think you were going to win. I mean, I don't want to set myself up for disappointment ever. So maybe that's some kind of spiritual belief system or detachment or this or that. But I was just like, I want to do it for fun. And then 
I realized how competitive of a person I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> well, how will this win impact your life going forward? I'm not really sure. It definitely solidifies my place in the city's canon of drag entertainment and re-inspired me in so many ways. I came up with some new acts because each week is a different challenge. And then as you get towards the end, there's two challenges per week and forces you to come up with a lot of ideas and ways of expressing yourself. So I just feel like re-inspired. I want to work on one woman shows or things like that, not only working in a drag bar. And I also won a cash prize of $10,000. So that kind of helps too. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. You mentioned RuPaul's Drag Race and Phoenix, legendary. With drag culture becoming popularized by such shows, really in the mainstream, have you seen attitudes shift toward drag culture? Yes, I have definitely seen major shifts just in the 11 or so years that I have been doing drag. Because keep in mind, this legacy comes way before me. And Atlanta is actually a significant cultural epicenter for drag. RuPaul was from here, but before her, it was a place for all the queer people to go that weren't living in major cities in the South. It was total gay LGBTQIA+, all the things, Mecca for these people who are not of heteronormative culture, I guess you could say. So there's a strong legacy of drag in the city, and it used to be so underground, illegal as well. People used to have to wear multiple articles of men's clothing to prove they weren't pretending to be the other gender. Keep in mind, this doesn't even cover like the of forced closeting of people who identify as trans. So we've seen such an amazing progression in my lifetime, even socially within the gay community. You know, a lot of gay men weren't so much into drag because it like reinforced this inner homophobia that they had. And they shied away from feminine expression. And now it's so mainstream, it's so celebrated that it's not taboo to date a drag queen, uh, to be identifying as gender nonconforming. However, with the mainstreamification of drag, it has invited, in my opinion, too many people to the conversation who, first of all, don't even belong there. And that's where I wish drag was more underground because it's now being used as a political football for far right conservatives and it's just totally unfair and goes literally against everything that drag is about you mentioned spreading joy and one of my ethos of drag is pure queer joy and self-expression because for so much of our lives if you aren't straight you're really ashamed of who you are and you wish so bad that you weren't like that. And then for me to be living in my truth and 100% owning who I am and however tacky or flamboyant or obnoxious or wild that may be, it's not bringing anything negative into this world. I'm coming from a place of love and now we're fighting people coming purely from a place of hate. 
Yeah, it is mind-boggling for many of us, I think, to try and understand that fierce resentment from people who don't even know what you do. What are your thoughts on Tennessee now legally banning public drag shows? I worry a lot about my rainbow family in Tennessee and... It's just so ironic that the one thing that I found a path as an artist in life, the thing that I get to use all my talents and make a living off of and have a a nice time here on this earth is now under such attack. I'm in the most bizarre timeline game of life possible. I never would have come up with this scenario. And everyone's just got it all wrong. And I, it reminds me so much of all the phobias that I've had to experience growing up. When I was in middle school, after 9-11, it was Islamophobia. Then there's, of course, homophobia. There's xenophobia with people coming from Mexico or Latin America as immigrants. You know, I've seen everyone be the scapegoat for society's problems. And not only in America, I mean, this repeats throughout civilization as far as history goes back but it's really just kind of sad and pathetic that these people have to make villains out of fringe characters of society to me it doesn't make any sense because there is the argument that you know children are more likely to be abused in any other setting than a drag show period And there's no such thing as grooming, I also want to say, because nobody groomed me and look at how extra fabulous I turned out, you know. (laughs) You did. And we want to talk about some of that joy you spread. As a drag performer, you host at the iconic Lips Atlanta, and you also host Drag Bingo on the Sundays at Politan Row in Colony Square. Would you describe Drag Bingo and what people who might want to attend can expect? Yes. So Drag Bingo is one of these gigs that I never thought would become such a reliable source of income for me. Usually I'm performing in nightclubs and hosting events. And I was approached a couple years ago by the people at Politan Row, and they are all about offering different types of programming for the community, things to do. And one of those things was drag bingo. And me being the talented comedian and MC. Uh, was fit for the job because yes, we play bingo and that's fun um, because it's free to play. Anyone can play any age and the winners get either a drink from the bar with or without alcohol, of course, or a food item from one of our sponsors because there's a lot of great food to eat at Politan Row. I mean, if you haven't been, Colony Square used to be this brutalist nightmare. Just kidding. I love brutalism and architecture. (laughs) But they really renovate it in a way where it's so modern and aesthetically a gorgeous place to hang out. And it is a fun little type of community. It's not just about calling numbers and winning bingo, but I'm like 
doing a lot of crowd work, meeting people who might be visiting, meeting people who live in the neighborhood and come all the time. There are kids that go, adults, any age. And it's just something to do and have a good time. Not everything has to be so political or so coming from a place of indoctrination or having an agenda. Like sometimes people just want to have something fun to do. And this is one of those things. And I'm actually shocked at how much it's become a place for people to go and something for them to do. It's been really fun. You described drag bingo as long form improv. <laughs> yes. How so? That's for my grant funding on the CV. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> it just makes it sound like that. Because you have to keep the energy going and you have to make it interesting. If I were to just call out the numbers and it would be kind of boring. And as a form of long improv, I can only make that reference because I took some classes at Dad's Garage. Hey, y'all. They Love taught it. me some great things. Yes, as a host on the mic, like it was such a great experience to learn improv from them. But it's about this idea of just introducing new ideas and connecting with people and listening and there's actually a lot of kids that come, which is so funny because I'm like, oh gosh, I don't want some parent accusing me of like putting drag in front of a child, but they see it as colors and sparkles and fun. Yeah. You know, it's like adults are the, are the judgment and they teach the kids the judgment. And it's just nice to see someone with a fresh perspective being like, you're fabulous and I'm having fun. Brigitte, pre-COVID, so a few years ago, I interviewed a drag queen whose name I wish I could recall at this moment, who was reading children's stories to young kids at the bookshop in Pont City Market. And why not? Yes. You know, I think it's really cool. I think you could either be talking about my friends who do that, Edie Cheeseburger or Brent Starr. I know they both do drag story time at Pond City Market. And I just think it's another great way to bring joy to people. Again, I feel like the real purpose and expression of drag is joy. And it's been said so many times, but RuPaul says that you're born naked and the rest is drag because everything we do in our life is a form of drag. You deciding what clothes you want to put on and presenting this idea of yourself to society. That's the whole thing. Drag just takes it like to the most creative and fabulous level. And I don't know why people are so threatened by that. It's really kind of pathetic. Many people who perform in drag identify in various ways along the gender spectrum. Do you want to talk about how you identify on the gender spectrum? Yes, I think that's a fabulous question because you said it already, gender spectrum. If people can just understand that not everything in life is so this or that and 
many things in life are not linear. It doesn't all have to make sense or be universal. That's the whole joy of life itself is your own voice, your individual experience. And yes, we share a lot of common experiences as humans, but shouldn't you embrace the things that make you happy about being alive? So I've learned so much about the gender spectrum from being a drag queen. I mean, I admit prior to doing drag, I had my own internalized homophobia, transphobia, really? misogyny based on society indoctrinating me personally. I mean, I don't want to get too like, you made me like this. But I mean, where does a child learn these types of ideas shaming other people's existence than the people raising them and the media and everything. So overcoming those things opened my eyes to so many amazing people who are living their truth. And that's what I love about being friends with people who identify as trans is because they have no choice but to be who they really are. And that is so inspiring to me just as a person who's trying to find myself. And I am what is considered cisgendered, someone who identifies with the gender they were assigned at birth. Hopefully I'm getting that right because I know my Gen Z friends will school me. But I love the fact that I don't have to just be one thing. Me even doing drag takes me away from being completely cisgendered because I'm able to straddle that line of gender expression and feel comfort in that. So I really don't even know what you would call that. I don't consider myself trans because I do live my life as a male and present as a male and love being a guy, whatever form of that I am. But I just love the fact that I know that this is all just presentation and everything is an illusion that sounds way too existential and meta for a conversation at nine in the morning or whenever this airs <laughs> <laughs> but it's like if everyone just lightened up and had a little more fun with their life the world could be such a better place Brigitte what options are available for drag queens who perform professionally. I mean, you talked about improv and being a comedian, and I know we've seen great singers who often take on the persona of a famous artist. What are the professional options? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways for success. It doesn't look the same for everybody. It took me a long time of doing drag on the side before it became my full-time job. I was also in the dance company Core Dance in Decatur. Oh, yes. And I was dancing with them for about 10 years, which was incredible. I got to do a lot of traveling and go to Europe and work with all these amazing people. And then I would do drag gigs like at night. So not a lot of sleep during those years, but tons of performing, tons of experiences. And I built up a regular set of gigs for myself that could sustain me completely. So there's your nightlife gigs, there's your hosting gigs. Lips is an amazing place because it employs a lot of drag queens. Like you said, there are 
like celebrity illusionists. And it's basically just getting the right gigs, getting the right paying gigs. Of course, paying your dues. I used to work for like drink tickets and now I'm like, would never do that, <laughs> you know? So it takes a lot of dedication and hard work and being a good person and making those connections. Yeah, I wish there was just a, a one way to do it so everyone could be successful, but it's taken a lot. Have of... you thought about mentoring others, younger performers? or emerging performers? Yeah, I think I'm in a place now where I can be a mentor to people. The drag system itself was created with this idea of family members. A lot of people have like a drag mother, a drag father, a drag aunts. It's an extended family of resources and people that you get advice from that teach you things along the way. It's really common for you to have a drag mother and you take their last name. That's more of like an old school way of doing drag. I don't have a mother bidet, unfortunately. I made that name up for myself. <laughs> oh, it's it's prize winning itself. Thank you. So yeah, I I am in a place where people that are up and coming ask me for advice and whatever bits of knowledge I can pass on, I'm more than happy to do that. Drag queen Brigitte Bidet, speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzis. Politan Row in Colony Square holds drag bingo every Sunday from 1 to 3 p.m. It's free and it's all ages, and you can find more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, Atlanta author Laurel Schneider shares how she combines Judaism and magic in her new young adult book, The Witch of Woodland. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. Award-winning Atlanta-based author Laurel Schneider is known for her numerous picture books and novels for children, including Orphan Island and My Jasper June. Her newest offering is The Witch of Woodland, a magical modern-day story rooted in the Jewish faith and a strong belief in magic. The story is set in our city, with the in-town neighborhoods of Ormwood Park and East Atlanta as the backdrop. 
The book is coming out on Walden Pond Press a week from today, Tuesday, May 16th. And the author joins me now, Laurel Schneider. Welcome to City Lights. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Kim. Well, it is wonderful to have you with us. To start out, would you give a brief overview of The Witch of Woodland? Sure. I This is the first time I've had to do it, so uh, so I'm, I'm learning as I go. Um, this is a book about a girl named Zippy, which is short for Zipporah Chava McConnell. Um, and she has spent her life growing up in Ormwood Park, and um, she lives with her parents in a little bungalow and goes to the school down the street. And she's sort of an awkward kid. She's anxious. She's always had a very best friend named B, and they are having some challenges. And one day her mother comes home and says that it's time to begin preparing to become bat mitzvah. And Zippy's response to this is sort of, why? <laughs> Uh, because her family doesn't regularly go to synagogue and she's not sure that she believes in any of this. Uh, but the other reason that she says why is that Zippy herself has a different belief system. She has developed over time uh, a belief that she herself is a witch and that she has a kind of magical powers. And those ideas of sort of her witchcraft that she believes in so deeply and personally, and then this religious community and belief structure that she sort of knows that they belong to, but hasn't been deeply involved in kind of create a kind of conflict. And, and she, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but as the story goes on, she, Zippy does other kinds of magic. Um, as the rest of her life becomes kind of destabilized, she leans into her magic and she discovers that she has powers she didn't know she had. And, and she unleashes something upon the city, let's say. And I don't know how much we want to get into that or not. But. Well, that is totally up to you. I never want to spoil things for people. No, no, it's it's fine. My instinct is always to give more away than I should because I feel like my books aren't really about like the plot points. They tend to be more about character and world and sort of what people are thinking and feeling so but yeah I didn't want to I didn't want to jump the gun well there are some big themes going on in this book from my understanding it's your eighth middle grade novel but it's the first one in which you've engaged with questions about Jewish identity would you share how Zippy's story intersects with your own Sure. This is a book I began I think maybe people will, will relate to this this is a book I began before 2020 and I had one idea, set of ideas about why I was doing it the way I was doing it and what I was trying to do. And then as, as I think happened to so many of us, the world derailed me and my book. And, <laughs> mm. um, and it ended up a different book than I thought it would be. But initially, um, I think there were a couple of things going on. One is that there has been this rising tide of anti-Semitism. And it is something I have struggled with in all of my books that... Um, I'm not somebody who writes by choosing a theme and saying, I'm going to put this sort of this message in my book. And so I've sort of waited and waited for the story where it would naturally become a bigger aspect of the book. Um, past books have had Jewish influences, Jewish characters, but not as a central thing. And I think just with everything that's been going on in the world, uh, I felt like I'm not, I'm not creating representation for the kind of Jewish kid I was, for the kind of Jewish community I live in. And you don't get to complain about being depicted as, you know, a monolith if you aren't trying to contribute to a more nuanced way of seeing people. Um, and so that felt like something I needed to try, that, that I needed to put Judaism more at the center of my next book. And that was a very conscious thing. And the other thing that happened was that 
um, my children are now 16 and 17, but but when I began this, I was sort of in between my older son's bar mitzvah and my younger son's bar mitzvah. And so that was the culture that I was kind of in. My life was full of bar mitzvah classes and invitation proofs and you know, like <laughs> ordering 200 kippahs for the, the guests and stuff like that. And so it was also just the stuff of my life. You know, the book does heavily rely on Jewish themes. One of them is the concept of the book of life. Would you Mm -hmm. explain what that is for those who are unfamiliar? Sure. So there is this idea that we we inhabit the book of life, that the book of life is this, I mean, I've always understood it to be sort of metaphorical, um, but that the book of life is written every year and then it is sealed. And this happens during the high holidays. We have these days of awe between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And the idea is that kind of the book of life is written and then you have this contemplative time to think about the the past year and what you want to do differently and who you want to be in the upcoming year. And then on Yom Kippur, it's sealed. And that sort of, it's not really fate, but it's 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 a sort of a faded kind of sense of the upcoming year ahead of you. Um, and so Zippy, the story takes place throughout a longer period of time, but largely it takes place between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The sort of the big action of the story, Zippy's big magic tricks kind of begin with Rosh Hashanah. And um, so she's in this sort of contemplative place and going back and forth to synagogue a couple of times and engaging with the rabbi and things like that. So it, it really does have a lot of kind of theological content. And she's listening to the rabbi at synagogue and kind of going home and thinking about like, well, what do I think about that? And, and what does that mean? Yep. And so there is a very special book that Zippy finds in the library accidentally, by the way, the East Atlanta Library. Loved all of the little local things that you dropped in this. Yeah, there's a lot of magic at the East Atlanta Library. Can you tell us a little bit about this book that she finds? Yeah, so she finds this tiny book, this little red leather bound book with a string around it. And she accidentally steals it while they're at the library. <laughs> uh, what happens? They're at the library to get a like hard copy periodical for this project they're doing for school, which she thinks is very frustrating that she can't go to Google and just print something. And uh, and while she's kind of hanging around in the library waiting for her friend to come out of the bathroom, she finds this little red magical book. And then her friend comes racing out of the bathroom and says, we have to go now, we have to go now. And Zippy sort of doesn't think about what she's doing. She shoves it in her pocket and runs out the door and chases her friend off down the street. And um, and what's happened is that her friend has had her first period and is in sort of crisis mode, which is in some ways, I feel like that scene is sort of the heart of the book where like, or the beginning of the book where B is having this moment that Zippy has not yet had and doesn't understand and feels kind of distanced from, which is so much what seventh grade is about, right? Kids oh, are in one gosh. place or another emotionally and you sort of can't see over the wall and you're not sure what's over there, but you kind of have to pretend you can see over the wall. So she's sort of trying to keep physically keep up with B, and and shoves the book in her pocket. And they go back to B's house, and B's mother he sort of takes B off upstairs, and Zippy opens the book out of boredom, and discovers that it's this very ancient leather bound thing, uh, but it's completely empty. There's nothing in it. And then this very and I'm this is something that's in a lot of my books. I really love what I think of as small magic. I have this whole idea of having like magic, having a dial and that you can turn the magic way, way down and do little things. And so there's this one just gesture of a moment that I think is where the magic starts, where she tries to tie the string on the 
on the book again and it won't tie like the the ribbons just keep untying themselves and she realizes this is something different like this is this isn't a regular library book but she's not sure what will happen right and the book becomes more magical over time and does some amazing things that we will leave for the reader to find out when we talk about zippy doing magic i found while reading the book knowing that this is a 13 year old a seventh grader who is telling Mm -hmm. me this story because it is written in the first person you use some devices in it where you go back and forth between zippy telling her story and then explaining why she's writing a book and how she doesn't really quite understand how to write a book but she's figuring (laughs) it out as she goes, I mean, who does, right? right? Totally. Well, you, obviously. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but having to be in the first person with such a young person, it mm-hmm. felt like an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. And so when you set up Zippy just factually at the beginning, as someone who believes in witchcraft, and as mm-hmm. someone who believes that she has magical powers, it's very difficult to figure out whether or not I, as the reader, should believe that. Yeah, it's funny. There's a one tiny detail in the very beginning of the book that that I knew is like one of the first things I knew about the book was that early in the book, I was going to place the word irregardless. Ah. And it's it's a <laughs> tiny, tiny little thing, but I felt like it was this little decodering that I want people to understand <laughs> that Zippy doesn't know things. Like she, I mean, like all of us, <laughs> she thinks she knows some things. There's other things she doesn't know if she knows them for sure or not. And there's something she definitely doesn't know that she's fumbling around pretending to know, right? Like, this is the way we all operate in the world. And um, and I so I wanted to put, like, sort of a little thing in the book that we all know is wrong to kind of indicate, like, you know, that, that there are going to be other things in this book that Zippy is wrong about. And, and a big part of that for me, um, and I struggled with this. This was hard for me. I come from an intermarried family. I grew up with a very non-traditional Jewish experience. And I spent a lot of my life feeling like I was wrong or that if I knew something, it, it like the sort of not being sure what my sources were, not being sure. And I'm not talking about like um, technically correct things, but like feeling like I didn't know how to tuck my T-shirt into my jeans like the cool girls did or um, how to pronounce a word that everybody else's Yiddish speaking grandparents pronounced correctly. Um, that there were just lots of sort of signifiers of what I thought was kind of right or wrong. And one of the things that I know now as an adult is that nobody feels like they know everything. Nobody feels totally kosher, right? Um, But it's taken me into adulthood to really feel that way. And so I wanted to sort of allow Zippy to make mistakes. Um, But in particular, I wanted her to not understand a lot of things about Judaism because I wanted her to go ask those questions because I feel like that's such an important part of learning, but it's also a really important part of Judaism that, that sort of the question is more important than the answer a lot of the time. And that wrestling and grappling with questions is the process that we care about, right? Um, And that's true for writing, that's true for friendship, that's true for all sorts of things in the world. Uh, And so, yes, so you're exactly right. She shouldn't be reliable. But in a sense, I kind of, I found myself thinking like, no no narrator is reliable entirely. That's so true. And you did put a lot into the book that helps someone who is not of the Jewish faith or of that upbringing to understand a lot about Judaism. And the way that it is explained to a reader is the way that a 13 year old 
would explain it to another 13-year-old, which is so much easier to process. Kids are, I mean, nobody's perfect at it, but kids are so much better at asking questions than adults are. And I feel like this is one of the things that writing for kids has taught me. I can explore things in a book for children that adults would be embarrassed to ask questions about. You know, the things that we go and we Google on the sly in a conversation to see if we, we you know, before we speak, because we're afraid we might get it wrong, that, that, that Zippy is able to ask questions because she's in this bat mitzvah process, because she has never gone to Hebrew school, because, because she has made herself vulnerable and admitted she doesn't know these things. Um, she can ask questions that the reader may not know the answer to and and it sort of weaves into the story in a way that should feel comfortable yeah and so you mentioned that a lot of it is about just that feeling of not fitting in but Mm -hmm. for zippy specifically having grown up with an intense belief in witchcraft and that she Mm -hmm. is a witch connecting with her jewish faith was more challenging and when she starts studying for her bat mitzvah she comes across a line in the Torah that is very upsetting to her. Would mm-hmm. you explain what that is and, and how that affects her story? Right. So Zippy's preparing for her bat mitzvah. And when you celebrate your bat mitzvah, your bar mitzvah, your, nowadays people are starting to call it a bar mitzvah or a brit mitzvah so that there's a, Take a the gender, gender out. neutral option. Mm-hmm. Yep. But so when you're studying, you are assigned a parsha. You are assigned a section of the Torah that will be yours to read and you prepare for it and you read it and then you explain it to the people who are present. And so Zippy is assigned this portion called Mishpatim. When she goes to read it, she discovers there's a line in it about witchcraft. And the line says, there are different translations, but it basically says, thou shalt not tolerate a sorceress to live, which to her is obviously upsetting. But more than that, it proves the existence of witchcraft, right? If you don't like something, if you don't want something in the world, it, it is in some ways an affirmation that that thing is real. And for Zippy, who you know, she believes in witchcraft, but the world doesn't. Her world doesn't, friends don't. She sort of spent her young childhood playing witches with people who then outgrew it, and she kind of refused to let go of it. And this is the crux of what Zippy is dealing with, is she's just a young 12, 13. She's she's not really ready for, there's a lot of scenes about like the bathroom in the middle school. There's (laughs) She's not ready for what some of the other kids are doing and being. And um, that's, that's really important to me, that sort of exploration that middle school my last few books my first couple of novels were for younger readers my last couple of novels I really tried hard to write for that like seventh grade reader because I feel like we don't always represent them in our literature we want children to be younger than they really are as they reach these ages and so we we sort of age their books you know it's sort of you want a high, high, high enough reading level for a seventh grader, but you end up with content that feels like maybe it's more authentically third or fourth or fifth. So that that's sort of Zippy's challenge that she's in in that moment. As you mentioned, it is a coming of age story of a kid to a young adult and those feelings of fitting in. And as Zippy struggles with these feelings, there becomes a time where she is confronted to the idea of conforming to social norms while Mm -hmm. trying still to not lose her sense of individuality. Right. The way that you present it in the book is with something as simple as a haircut, right? Uh I think to me as, as a person, like in my own life, haircuts have actually been 
remarkably important in this way that I was a kid who was very awkward and lonely for much of elementary and middle school. And then as I sort of, I mean, the beat is me, right? You can't write a book without putting yourself <laughs> into your main character. That as I hit high school, I realized that I could embrace the quirky, different parts of myself and not try to be like everybody else. And in doing so might find my people, might find my community, that it wasn't this choice between being alone or being like everybody else, but rather sort of more carefully claiming myself, figuring out who that person was, and then being honest about it so that I could draw the people to me who I could trust, who I would relate to, who I would understand. That's a really nuanced thing for a kid to figure out. And for me, often it had to do with a haircut that like, I decided one day that I wasn't going to be a regular kid anymore. I was going to put funny little braids in my hair and be a hippie girl, you know, <laughs> like tried that out in eighth grade for a little while. And then I cut all my hair off and shaved the back of my neck and I was going to be a punk rock girl. And like, there is a sort of fumbling that happens in those years. Indeed. Well, as mentioned, this is set in the neighborhoods of East Atlanta and Ormwood Park, and you are wonderful about name dropping some favorite local <laughs> businesses like Bookish and Emerald City Bagels and Morelli's Ice Cream. There's also a very central location of Red's Farm. What, mm -hmm. what can you tell us about Red's Farm? I'm so glad you asked. Um, and it was funny, the very last thing I was able to change in the manuscript before it went to press was to put something in about Red. Mm. Uh, so Red's Farm, for those who don't know, is a little pocket wilderness kind of garden in Ormwood Park at the end of a gravel road uh, that uh, a man uh, named Farmer Red has been taking care of and who sort of introduced me to it many, many years ago when my children were young. And we used to take our kids there and you know, catch salamanders and snakes and roam trees and go on rope swings. And sometimes you'd go there and there'd suddenly be a llama that somebody had, you know, <laughs> staked out or, you know, somebody has left their chickens there for a while. Like it, it's just, it, there's a community garden there. There's all these big old trees and raspberry bushes, and honeysuckle vines. And it was just, when we discovered it, when we first moved to the neighborhood, it was a magical, strange, it almost felt like an omen. I kind of walked into the farm the first time and felt like this can't exist. This is too beautiful to be here in the city like this. He Red lived on a in a house on Burn Street that backed onto it, but um, he just thought he made it his life's work to maintain and create this beautiful space that he then let the community use for all sorts of things. And, um, and he died this year and there was a memorial for him. And they're now working on, if anybody's interested, they're now working on putting together a foundation so that we can keep the farm as a sort of memorial to him and, uh, you know, just as a support to the neighborhood, because it is a special, special thing that once something like that goes away, you can't get it back. So if you if you, I, I don't have the website handy, but if people go and look up, there's a Facebook group and places to donate and volunteer time if you want to help keep the garden, things like that. But, you know, he was just a man, you know, like I think I met him originally at the farmer's market in East Atlanta years ago before it moved locations. And sometimes I'd see him having a beer at the elder tree or something. He was just a guy around town. He was just a wonderful, generous person. He really was. And that farm is a magical place. I was, it just warmed my heart to read about Red in your book. Well, thank you so much. Well, he was, the farm was central to my last book, my Jasper June. Um, the character in that book, Leah names it the vine realm and has a, a, a different relationship with it. And these books in some ways operate as a sort of uh, companion series. Uh, My Jasper June is about two girls named Leah and Jasper who um, they want there to be magic in the farm. They want to find something there. 
that can save them from certain situations that they are in. And they look for it and they try for it and they don't find it. And I liked the idea of having these two books. And, and so there, there are name checks, right? Like Leah gets mentioned in The Witch of Woodland as like a cool girl that goes to Morley's and gets the like fancy ice cream flavors or whatever, like the rosemary olive oil. Right, Not to right. diss anybody likes rosemary olive oil. Right. So there are these two characters who sort of know each other from a distance but don't engage in each other's stories at all and one of them looks for magic and does not find it and has to solve her own problems and one of them looks for magic and does find it and i liked the idea that um that we we all inhabit the same world but we live it differently and we see things differently in it and especially as it relates to religion that like we can be living sort of on different layers emotionally around these same conversations and subjects. What's real for one person may not be real for another person. And that's okay. It doesn't devalue or disprove the validity of the thing. Um, and so I like that idea of these sort of two stories that it sort of happen simultaneously, but they don't engage with each other at all. And, and then there's a little mouse. There's a mouse character that runs through <laughs> the two books, sort of is clearly magical in one and questionably magical in the other one, that I wanted to link these books in some way. That is so cool. I did not know that. I assume you're talking about the zombie mouse? Yes. Yeah, so the zombie mouse in The Witch of Woodland is, is introduced first in My Jasper June as this mouse that the cat brings in. And, uh, and Leah, you know, sort of runs the cat off. And then, and then the mouse jumps up and runs away. And she's like, she sort of can't believe it. She's like, did that really happen, that thing that just happened? But it's like the one little touch in the book that actually is sort of a magic or not moment. And so I wanted this book to give you the sort of the origin story of the mouse. I love that connection. That's fantastic. And so this book is coming out a week from today, next Tuesday, which is perfect timing for Jewish Heritage Month. Are you having you. a launch event? We are. We're having a party May 16th at Little Shop of Stories and very excited about it. I always get a little nervous before lunch parties, but um, Little Shop of Stories is such a wonderful, wonderful resource indicator and uh, so supportive of the children's lit community, but also just the, the city and the, the literary community as a whole. Um, so I'm excited to go celebrate with them. Young adult author Laurel Schneider. The Witch of Woodland comes out Tuesday, May 16th, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, Gringo Star takes the spotlight in our series, Speaking of Music, and we'll hear about the band's experience playing this past weekend's Shaky Knees Music Festival. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, and for Lois Reitzis, thank you for being here. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Music, where we hear from local musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Nicholas Virgil. I play guitar and bass and sing for the band Gringo Star. I started playing music when I was 14 in a band with my brother, Pete, who was also in Gringo Star. He was in eighth grade. And we just started making four track recordings at our house in elementary school, high school. Every little thing 
say I'm inspired by early rock and roll from the 1950s and 1960s just reading about musicians from those days and the paths that they took to touring and recording I call Atlanta my home. I was born here. I've spent most of my life here. And when we go on tour and come back, we look forward to coming back here. I'd say Atlanta's influenced our music uh, 100%. We would not have met any of the musicians that we play with or have any of the friends that have influenced us. say probably my favorite place to go and hear performances in Atlanta is the Earl in East Atlanta. We've played here over the last couple of decades a lot and people that run the venue are amazing and we love the way it sounds and it's in our neighborhood. Our songs, Hanging Around and Told Me Once Before, are the two songs we chose to send, and they were two tracks off of our new album, and we sent these because they're two of our favorites off the new record that we recorded at the beginning of 2022 and worked on for most of the first half of that year. One taste and I'm sold Like we looked and found Things that kept you down On June 2nd, we will be releasing our new album On and On and Gone and having a release party at the Earl in East Atlanta to celebrate. Then we head off to Europe for about five weeks of touring. You can check out all of our stuff and pre-order our new album at www.gringostar.net Nick Ferjuel of Atlanta's Gringo Star and our series Speaking of Music. The band played the Shaky Knees Music Festival over the weekend, and I caught up with them after their set. Although they've played many national festivals in the past, bassist and guitarist Josh Longino explained why this festival felt different. I guess the big thing for me was getting to it here at home. Like, I've always done it far away place, never, you know, right down the street, so festival stages are obviously much larger than the typical stage that Gringo Star would play on and founding members brothers Nick and Pete Ferjuel shared how the five piece deals with the size difference. We uh we try to consolidate our group actually to just like the, the tightest we can. We play usually play close together at most shows you know you get on a bigger 
festival stage and it's harder to hear everybody when you're spread out so i like it to feel like it normally does so i think when we're the closer together the better you know Drummer Mario Calangio has been with Gringo Star since 2017, and he says he appreciates the easygoing nature of his bandmates. We're the only rock band that has no tattoos, no piercings. Our parents are still happily married. We're well adjusted, and we're ready to rock. <laughs> the band's new album, On and On and Gone, comes out June 2nd, and they'll play The Earl that evening before heading out on a European tour. Finally today, speaking of Europe, the second annual European Film Festival is this weekend, May 12th through 14th at the Plaza Theatre. This year's festival includes a documentary with exclusive footage from the war in Ukraine. City Lights producer Summer Evans has more. Over 20 local European consulates and organizations are presenting a variety of films that explore European identity. The opening night screening of Freedom on Fire is a documentary about Ukrainians displaced by the ongoing war. The filmmaker Evgeny Afanevsky created this as a companion piece to his Academy Award-nominated 2015 documentary, Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom. Afanevsky's latest film looks at the humanitarian crisis, the Ukrainians who vowed to stay behind, and how the international community has responded. Other films are screened at the Plaza Theater through Sunday evening. Thank you, Summer. More information about the festival's lineup is on their website, eurofilmfestatl.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of art and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., poet Jenny Sauter Orfi discusses Dear Outsiders, her new book of prose which captures sibling life in a coastal town. If you missed part of today's show, like Lois's earlier conversation with drag superstar Brigitte Bidet, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Edder, and Shelly Canavy is our engineer. I'm City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.